So, the Passover, the night to be much remembered, the days of unleavened bread will soon be here. And I hope that the next few weeks are going to be meaningful and enriching to each of you. So I tried to put something together today that I thought would be helpful from Scripture for you individually, but hopefully more importantly for all of us collectively. And you'll see what I mean in a few moments. I think it's something that will be quite helpful as we get uh, ready for the spring holiday season. So let me ask this to start, though. What would happen if you grab some Christians, typical Christians, off the streets of Dallas, people that read their Bibles, go to church on Sundays, probably go to the Easter Christmas services for their church, and you played a game with them. You had them sit down at the table, and you put each of the holy days on a card. And you wrote the name of the holy day on the front of the card, and on the back, you wrote what it means, what it's about, why we do it, what its true meaning is. But you scrambled them all up, threw them on a table, and told them to put them in order. What would happen? And then, one more question. As they put those holy days and the Passover in whatever order they think they should be in, you ask this last question. Where would you place this extra little chip that I've wrote coming out of sin on? Where would you place that in the order of all the holy days? What do you think that they would do? I don't know for sure, but I think that most people that are Christians at most Sunday-going churches would probably place it at the very beginning before the Passover, before Christ's atoning sacrifice. They wouldn't put it at the middle, they wouldn't put it at the end, because most Protestants are taught, once saved, always saved. Come out of sin, accept Jesus Christ, I don't really have to worry about sin anymore. That's an event in the past. So they probably place it at the beginning. Sin is simply no longer an issue after we repent and accept Jesus Christ, I think most Christians in today's world would think. And are they correct? And if they're not correct, what are they missing? We'll talk about that today. Turn with me to start to Romans 3, verse 25. Romans 3, verse 25. What is it that you're missing if you think that sin no longer applies to you? that you've repented and it's over with. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Romans 3, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that were previously committed. Upon genuine repentance of baptism, all of our past sins are indeed forgiven. But the key word here is past those that have already occurred. Repentance at baptism does not eliminate the issue of sin from our lives after baptism, does it? It really is not once saved, always saved. Scripture tells us that plainly. Turn a little bit further to Romans 6, verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1, three more chapters. It addresses this directly. Romans 6, verse 1, I'll read 1 and 2. What shall we say then, brethren? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer? Therein, living within sin. Our goal as Christians is to walk the path of light with the help of the Holy Spirit and to stop sinning after we're baptized. That is surely our goal. But that will be a lifelong struggle. It has been a lifelong struggle that none of us has conquered 100%. I'm quite confident of that. After all, how, how among us, how many of us, anyone among us has not sinned since he or she was baptized? Probably no one. How about not sinned for a single year? How about a month or a week? It's an age-old struggle and it's captured in scripture. It's not just your struggle, it's not just mine. It's been true for all Christians throughout time. Turn to Romans 7 and it answers this directly. This age-old struggle of being baptized, having the Holy Spirit, but then struggling with sin. Romans 7 and verse 18, I'll read a few scriptures. You know it. I was read this by one of my clients who's a Christian, Sunday-going Christian, and it was the genesis for this message today. He quoted this to me this week. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not do, do, to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 21. I find in a law that evil is present, present with me and the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Said many thousands of years ago. Every one of us sins. All of mankind has sinned practically perpetually since the beginning of time. Some less than others, and hopefully Christians the least of all. But fortunately, Scripture does not hold up never sinning again after baptism as the standard for receiving the gift of eternal life. The standard is to go on to perfection, that's the title of our message today, going on to perfection, but that is perfection in our spiritual maturity and our development of godly character. Romans 6 verse 14, if you'd like to turn back a few, one more chapter, we're in Romans 7 now, but go back to Romans 6 in verse 14, what does it say? It puts it very nicely. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Sin doesn't rule our lives. Rather, we begin with the Holy Spirit to get control of our lives through a lifelong conversion process. So hopefully at the end of the next few weeks, after this year's Passover, after the night-to-be has been cleaned up, after the unleavened bread is over and the donuts are back in the house, we're going to want to have a better view of our Christian lives and our path out of sinning and our development of godly character. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. If perfection is our goal, then let's look at something that we can all work on together. 
something that will help us individually, as I said earlier, but I hope even more so collectively, something that will grow and demonstrate our spiritual maturity. Let's look at what that is. Turn to James. James, very simple scripture. You've probably read it before, maybe even recently, but what does it say in James 3 verse 2? For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. Have you ever put your foot in your mouth today? (laughs) Have you ever spoken too quickly? Have you ever said something you didn't mean? Have you ever said something you did mean and then regretted it? Have you ever offended others with your words? James 3 verse 2 knows that we have all offended and hurt and stumbled with our words. Some of us way more than others, but all of us, which is what my message is about today. The all of us, the local congregation. There's a great place where you can work on not stumbling on your words. A place where you can learn to not hurt others with what you say which comes from what you think. Even a place where you can learn how to work with those who do stumble and hurt you with their thinking and their words. And that place is the local congregation, these four walls. And even when you're not here and out and about, or maybe on your phone or your social media, wherever it is that you interact with the people of this congregation. The local congregation is a training ground for God to develop the leaders of the world tomorrow. Let me talk to you for a few moments about local congregations. They go way back. I can only share my own personal experience. My dad's mom, my grandmother, was sad. She had three bratty kids. She had a pretty grumpy husband. And it was 1956. And she was sitting in her barren kitchen. They're not fancy like today. (laughs) Think the honeymooners. And she turned on the radio and she heard the World Tomorrow uh, broadcast, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. And she started listening to it every single day. And she became a very enthusiastic Bible student because her local Lutheran church wasn't giving her what she needed. And so she listened and she paid attention and she wrote in questions that you were encouraged to do in those days, P.O. Box, dot, dot, dot. And she wrote in so many that they assigned her her own person to answer her own questions. (laughs) I'm told. (laughs) She also had her Lutheran pastor over into that same barren kitchen. I've been in it. It was barren. And she asked him over four or five different visits about her Bible questions. And he finally admitted the Bible does say that you should go to church on Saturday the Sabbath. And she never went back again. And she yearned to be baptized. And so two men in 1957, one year later, arrived from Pasadena, Ernest Martin and Bryce Clark. Some of you may know who that is, but those names are certainly well back in the history books. So she and her sister-in-law were baptized and they continued to study and listen to the radio for years until they got a letter that changed her life 
and I would argue all of our lives in our, in our family that, that came from them. It was a letter from Mr. Armstrong, and it announced that they were going to have a local congregation in New York City in 1959. Years I've been studying, years I've been baptized, and now we're going to have other people to meet with. I got to go to the 25th anniversary, not the first one. And so she went with two of her three children to New York City. I think you know it's off of Times Square. It was met in a hotel. And she was so excited to meet all the people and to interact with them. And she was super happy. The two children that went were super happy. The one that stayed home was grumpy. And of course, dad was grumpy too. No one to make lunch or dinner. So she went to that first service and there was about 100 people, I was told. And the third child didn't go because he was on the golf team at school and the good tournaments were on Saturday. He didn't want to go. But as they continued to go to church and he continued to play golf, his golf score got worse and worse. Those strokes racked up and racked up. And so he finally said, I guess I'll go. And he went to church. And by then there was about 200 people, 250 people attending. And he experienced what his mom had been telling him and his two siblings, young and old, farmers and business people, grade school and college educated people, rich and poor, tall and short, skinny and not skinny, funny and serious, charming and not charming. And just like New York City is today, just like it was then, so was the church, Italian, Greeks, Irish, Caribbeans, Germans, Puerto Ricans, Swedish, African-Americans, Asians, French, and even Russians, all at church. And all those events were explained to me by my father. He was the last one who held out, who decided to go at the end. And he actually liked it so much that he eventually went to Ambassador College. He met my mom in Ambassador College because he didn't meet her at the local church in New York City he went to because he didn't talk to anybody. But she was there too that day but it took them all the way to California to actually meet. She said, I remember seeing your dad. He was the skinny kid who didn't talk to anybody who was standing over by the tree at all the socials. But somehow they got along, they met, and then we came along, and so we attended churches with them as my dad was a pastor in Evansville, Indiana, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Baltimore, Maryland, Tampa, Florida, Big Sandy, Texas, and of course, Pasadena, California. And in all those places, I remember young and old, farmers and business people, grad school educated and people from grade schools, skinny, not skinny, short, tall, Greek, Irish, Caribbean, Puerto Rican, Swedish, African American, French, Russian, Canadian, just like my parents described just like my grandmother described. We were all brought together by God into one place once every seven days for three to four hours. If I was with my mom, it was six or seven hours. <laughs> On annual holy days, countless church socials, sporting events, you've been to all the same things. Everyone got along perfectly, right? No conflicts, no disagreements, no one ever offending everyone else. Isn't that how you remember it? Not really. Usually it's okay but probably not. God called us together to learn how to get along and live at peace with all people. It was his training ground, it is his training ground 
for the future teachers and rulers of the world tomorrow. That's what this place is. People were called into the faith by God, but they brought their biases, they brought their opinions, their beliefs, and their differences with them. After all, before God called any of us, we were sinners, and our lives were pretty much given to please ourselves, weren't they? Clark's commentary, one of the most known, well-known commentaries, says this about people that God has called into the church. We lived in sin, walked in sin. It was woven through our whole constitution. It tinged every temper, polluted every faculty, and perverted every transaction of life. If Clark is right, and he probably is, what would you predict would happen if you put 100, 200, three, 600 people when I was in Baltimore together every single week in one small place that all lived in sin, walked in sin, and perverted every transaction of life? Well, you can think back and answer that for yourselves. Plenty of good, but some frictions too. So now to today. Do you? Do you get along with every member in the church, in your local congregation? Have you ever had a disagreement with another member? Ever been offended by another member? Have you ever offended someone here? Have you offended and you don't care because you don't like that person or care about them or care how they feel? Just look around. And don't literally look around right now. That would be awkward, right? Just look around. If not for our calling, would we all be friends? Would we just naturally have found each other? Would we ever even have met if it wasn't for our calling? I don't think so. I mentioned Baltimore, Maryland. I remember one time I was invited to, with my parents, to David Jackson's house. He lived in downtown Baltimore. <laughs> that was a gritty place in those days. It was a gritty city, and that was a gritty place. And we found ourselves there, and I'll never forget one night while dinner was being prepared, David came out and said, hey man, you gotta get back inside. You're gonna get killed. And I was like, what? What's happening? Right? But our family, looking like we did, was down in the middle of inner city Baltimore. And I never would have been found in a situation like that or had friends, brothers, fellow Christians in the church if it wasn't for our calling. And in the same way in those days, I don't know if you remember, some of you might, Tom Oakley, a pastor, who African-American pastor in those days, he lived in downtown Baltimore, but he never wanted to go out to the rural areas because of how he was treated. So see, those biases would have kept us apart, but God brought us together. Can someone from California be good friends with someone from Texas? Can a highly educated college professor become friends with someone who had to drop out of school to support their family? Can an outgoing, schmoozing, joke-telling person have a meaningful and enduring relationship with a quiet, reserved, thoughtful person? Can members of the greatest generation and millennials be friends? Can people of all races and cultures all meet together in congregations and live in peace and harmony? Well, we should. 
if we aren't doing everything we can to promote these kind of relationships, how in the world will God be able to send us out into the world tomorrow to teach the nations how to live in peace? So again, I say look around, metaphorically. <laughs> how many members here are your good friends? How many do we know well and talk to often? Perhaps more importantly, how many do we actually avoid or spend very little time with or hardly know at all? Why? Not my type, too opinionated, too old, too left, too right, too rich, too poor, only talks about sports, doesn't know sports at all, only wants to talk about spiritual things, never talks about spiritual things, doesn't care about my bad health, only talks about their bad health, offended me five years ago, stole my boyfriend, arrogant, obnoxious, opinionated, lazy, on and on and on and on and on. Those are just some of the things that prevent non-Christians from trying to get along with each other. When will we roll up our sleeves and get about the business of enlarging our circle of friends and church brethren with whom we're comfortable and friendly and expand in, our, in so doing our usefulness to God and the congregation and in so doing prepare to help the nations in the world tomorrow one day? <clears throat> or are you perhaps waiting until the world tomorrow to not offend or to not be offended or to be friendly or to reach out or to finally be extroverted. Think it's hard to get along with so-and-so here in Dallas? What about the myriad ideas and personalities and foibles and races and cultures and people from this Satan-soaked world? Turn to Acts 10, verse 34. What does God think about the world and other people? Acts 10 and verse 34. Then Peter, then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Does that describe you? What does God think about other people? Turn to 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3. What does God think about other, all the other people? 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3. For this is good and acceptable. This is good. This is acceptable. In the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. And of course, you know John 3, 16. For God so loved people like me, no, for God so loved people I like, no, for God so loved people with whom I identify, no, for God so loved people who are nice to me, no, for God so loved the world. We are here to learn how to care about and love as widely as God does. And where can we do that? Where can we practice that? right here at church. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 
What about all of us at church? Ephesians 2 and verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That is a magnificent statement about the church. The church is the place where God does his marvelous work. It should be his theater of justice, mercy, goodness, and truth. It should be where he is sought. It should be where he is found. It should be where his character is being built. Adam Clark put it very succinctly when it talks about this exact scripture in Ephesians 2. Of this glorious church, every Christian soul is an epitome. For as God dwells in the church at large, so he dwells in every believer in particular. Each is a habitation of God through the Spirit. In vain, all pretensions among sects and parties in the church of Christ have not found the doctrine and life of Christ. They're in vain. Traditions and legends are not doctrines, and our own showy ceremonies are not the life of God and the soul of man. I'm not sure if we really fully realize what Paul's saying about the church here. The church is where God dwells, meaning he is here. And not just the church at large, but in each, in each individual believer. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things has my hand made, and all those things has been made, says the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poured of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. The God who dwells outside of time and space, who's omnipotent, who is omniscient, who's without beginning and without end, who you would die if you just looked upon him, he will dwell in us. We have the very presence of God in our lives, these scriptures tell us. So now, how do you feel about your fellow brethren? Does it enrich how we think about those around us? Does it cause a light to go off in our thinking of how we interact and treat other people? And with this in mind, have we ever really viewed the local congregation as God's training ground for future leadership? Are we missing a huge opportunity to put our peacemaking skills and our friendship making skills and our encouragement skills and our forgiveness skills to practice? To be in training for something bigger in the future? Like, like what? Well, here's what, what, here's what, Luke 19. <laughs> Luke 19, a parable of what? Luke 19 and verse 12. I'll read four or five scriptures. He said, therefore, a certain noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Already get it? See what we're talking about? And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But a citizen hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. 
And it came to pass that when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded those servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, the pound hath gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, well, you good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, have you authority over 10 cities? What is that talking about? Is that some story about some dusty cities from the past? Let me read it again in my own words. Dangerous, but I'll try. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, is training his first fruits. He's asked us to build his very character and learn how to get along with one another here in the Dallas congregation, to prepare themselves to rule with him in the kingdom. When he returns to earth, he calls his disciples before him to provide them their assignments. One disciple will come and say, I have learned how to get along and make peace with all 100 members in my congregation. And he said unto her, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful very little, have you authority over 100 cities of the world where you can teach them how to get along and love one another. Then another disciple come to him saying, uh, I tried, but my local congregation has people that aren't my cup of tea, really. They put me off. They're challenging. I didn't really get on with too many of them, so I've just done the right thing and avoided them, not talked to them, interacted with them, looked at them, and may I also mention that I'm an introvert. I'm a shy person. Then Jesus said to him, how can I give you authority over even one city? Because there are going to be actual people there and they're going to be much more challenging than the ones I already put you with. I paraphrase. Let's look at some instructions from the Epistle of the Ephesians of how we might improve our peacemaking and our friendship making skills. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. These verses showcase our responsibility to build friendships and lasting relationships with people in the local congregation. As an example, it said, forbearing one another in love. What does that mean? According to Clark's commentary, it means sustaining one another, helping to support each other in all the miseries and the trials of life. Or if the word be taken in the sense of bearing with each other, it means that the, through the love of God working our hearts, we should bear with each other's infirmities and ignorance and ignorance knowing how much others have been or are still obliged to bear with us. And just in case we think this is going to be too much effort, verse 3 elaborates when it said endeavoring. It said endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What does that word endeavoring mean? Does that mean like I try? Like I'll endeavor to do it. I'll, I'll endeavor. The Greek word is actually spudatsu, and it means earnestly and zealously giving diligence to keep and maintain the unity of the spirit between people of different temperaments. Of course not everybody's like you. They don't dig you just like you don't dig them. But that's not how we're supposed to leave it. Where is this word, by the way, in 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Where is that word used in other scriptures? Is it a serious word? Is it a throwaway word? What is it? Like it's used once. Here's three places it's used. You can write them down if you want. 2 Peter 1 and verse 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence, spudatsu, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. How zealous should we be to make sure our election sure, our calling? Here's another one, 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, spudatsu, that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. How diligent should we be to be blameless before God? A little bit, a lot. And finally, Hebrews 4 and verse 11. Let us labor, spudatsu, therefore to enter into the rest, lest any man fall after the same example. How eager should we be to enter into the millennium? Probably a lot. Spudatsu is not a wimpy word. It infers that we exert effort intense labor. To put it simply, it means that we should really, 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 really try hard to get along with other people. Why? Because it's a training ground for those who hope to bear rule over cities and nations in the world tomorrow. Again, making peace with all your brothers and sisters in Christ is not like a, you know, a peace treaty, ends the war between two people, and we never talk, we build some walls up, and we never look at each other. We aren't peacemakers if we just avoid going to war, right, against our fellow members. We are to make every effort to build the friendliest and the warmest and the most meaningful relationships we can have. Not every attempt is going to be successful, of course. It takes two to tango. But we are to spend our time working on it for those important reasons I gave you. Romans 12, verse 18. This should be our guiding standard in regards to the subject we're talking about today. Romans 12, 18. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all members of your local congregation. So make peace. Be the peacemaker. Show interest in other brethren. Ask them questions. Listen to their answers. Ask them out for lunch or dinner. Send them a text or an email. Write them a note or a card. Forgive and forget if you need to. Try someone new. Bring people together. Smile and laugh. Talk and listen. Be that person. It's a deeply satisfying, fulfilling element of our Christian lives to have good, deep relationships with many other church brethren. Money and things don't really matter, but our relationships do. Our members are interesting, funny, charming, thoughtful people. They have great stories, they have great wisdom. They can uplift and support and bolster you. They can calm and comfort you. They can pray for you. They can correct and they can guide you. And they can give you plenty of cause for personal patience, self-control, and forgiveness, just like you can them.
Being the church has been a lifelong delight. We are a small and close-knit group, the first fruits. Not many, not the greatest, not the most powerful, people with plenty of problems, but we have always been headed in the same direction together, the kingdom of God. With Christ leading the way, assisted by his word, his pastors, and his fellow brethren, you all. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt said this. It sums up what I'm trying to say. Do what you can with what you have where you are. God has a plan of salvation for the entire world, a plan foreshadowed by the holy days that we are about to begin commemorating. As you get ready for the Passover, as you get ready for the Days of Unleavened Bread, let Matthew 5, verse 9 guide you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 